welcome to season three of the Kate Languages podcast. The first episode in this season is a Q&A episode and I'll be answering a couple of brilliant questions that I got from people on social media in a moment. But first of all, I just wanted to say Happy New Year. <laughs> so September is the beginning of the academic year. I know for a few people you have probably been back already for a while, but for lots of schools, especially um, in England and Wales, September marks the beginning of the academic year and hopefully things are going well, hopefully you're settling back into it, it's not been too much of a shock to the system for you and I really hope you had a great summer and were able to rest and relax a little bit and spend time with your friends and family and loved ones, maybe even go on holiday and you're now ready and raring to go for the new academic year. So as I said, it's a Q&A episode and I've got a couple of questions that I'm going to be answering in a bit. But first of all, I wanted to talk about September resolutions. So on the 1st of September, I put a post on my social media about September resolutions. And I just wanted to go into a bit more detail and kind of explain what on earth I was talking about. So I think for people who work in the world of education, the 1st of September to me marks the beginning of the year in a way that, I don't know, I just feel like the 1st of January is fine, but it's kind of in the middle of the academic year, it's the middle of winter, and everyone's cold and tired and it's all dark. But the 1st of September to me is the true start of the year of looking forward to the rest of the academic year, as in looking ahead. I mean, you might not be looking forward to it, you might be dreading it, but looking ahead to the rest of the academic year and thinking about the things that you want to put in place and how you want to either continue with things that you've already been doing that are working really, really well, reflecting on those, but then also thinking about what you can do to change and whether that's related to your actual teaching in the classroom, whether it's related to your work-life balance, or it could be things outside of work which are as important, if not maybe more important, than the actual job in hand. So yeah, so I put a post on my social media on the 1st of September about my resolutions. I'll go into detail in it, about those in a moment. And I got some lovely responses from people talking about what they're planning to do for this academic year. One of them was, for example, to only work until 5.30 in the evening and then if it's not done, it's not done. And I think that's a great resolution. I do feel perhaps this is more achievable when you're a few years into your career, but it is a good thing to practice doing and to think about doing right from the beginning because it's so easy as a teacher to work every evening and every weekend. And honestly, I know from my experience, and you can listen to my burnout episode, it doesn't help. It doesn't have your teaching, it doesn't have your mental or physical health, and in the end, you burn out and you can't do it anymore. And if you want to be in this job for the long term, you know, and it, need, it needs to be sustainable, and you need to look at ways of making sure it doesn't take over your entire life, and that you have time to rest and relax and recharge your batteries so that you can be the best teacher that you can possibly be in the classroom. So I love that one. Another response from somebody was talking about noticing the positives at school more. And I think, again, it's so easy to focus on the negatives and life is tough in schools and it is getting tougher and tougher. You know, it's not been easy over the past few years with the pandemic and I know there's a lot of problems with funding and money and stuff like that in schools at the moment. So yeah, it's really easy to focus on all the negatives, but noticing the positives, I think, is a really 
great thing to do. One of the ways in which you can do this is to send emails home or however you communicate with parents, positive emails or make positive phone calls or whatever, because I think it's so easy to only contact parents when kids have misbehaved or they've not done the homework or whatever. And I think if you take the time to even just contact one parent from each of your classes once a week, just to say, your kid's doing really well, they're working really hard, and I'm really pleased with them. It makes you feel better. I mean, it will make that parent's day, like, they will love that. But it will make you feel better as well. I often actually found that I liked writing reports, because I'd be going through, and I'd be like, oh, this, yeah, this kid's doing really well, and they're really lovely. Oh, and so is this one, and so is this one. And actually, you'd go through, and you'd think, oh, this class is really difficult. No, it's not. There are a few kids who aren't doing, doing the work that they need to be doing, but actually, probably like... 25 kids in a class of 30 are just amazing and working really hard and brilliant and it just resets your mind about the positives the only thing I would say about that though is don't don't fall into the trap of toxic positivity which is where you only focus on the positive if something is difficult and it and it is negative you are allowed to feel those negative feelings and you are allowed to be really annoyed and really fed up and have a rant and a vent and just be like oh, I can't do this but what you need to then do is not dwell on those feelings you need to allow yourself to feel those feelings get them all out of your system but not dwell on them because that's when you just kind of get into this dark hole of negativity and that again is just not great for your mental health so that's my little tip there um and then part of what this person also said was stop stressing the little things and I think that relates to what I've just said as well so they were some of the September resolutions of some of my Instagram followers I'd love to hear what yours are as well it's never too late to make resolutions to be fair um I mean this episode is coming out on the 5th of September so <laughs> you're only five days into the academic year and for lots of you it probably is just the first day so what are you planning to do this year to make sure that you're working as effectively and efficiently as possible what things are you changing what things are you keeping that are doing really really well let me know on social media at Kate Languages on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook or email kate at katelanguages.co.uk. I'd love to hear what you're up to this year. So I've made four resolutions for September this year and I've got to say they're not hugely related to my work. I think I've got quite good boundaries in place from five years of running my own business, working for myself, having to create these very strong boundaries around my child as well. So yeah, just kind of more of the same with my work. There's a few things that I'm working on and I want to change. But yeah, as a rule, I'd say I'm pretty, pretty pleased with my work-life balance. So my four, yeah, my four resolutions are more just related to general life stuff, really. The first one is to continue to get outside every day. This is something that's really, really important to me. My kid just loves being outside as well. And we just love going to parks, going to the forest and just hanging out outside and I wanted to remind myself to carry on doing that as it gets colder and darker because I think it's so easy to be outside loads in the summer but it's something that you know as September turns into October and November etc uh yeah it's harder to get outside but we're going to continue trying to get outside every day we're actually doing um a challenge called the 1000 hours outside challenge there are a few uh, Facebook groups 
actually that are really really good and the founder of the 1000 hours outside challenge has a podcast called 1000 hours outside shockingly it's 1000 hours over the course of a year and it's it's based on the fact that most kids spend over a thousand I think it was like 1200 hours or something a year on screens which is horrible because uh, that it, so a thousand hours a year works out to be it's between two and a half and three hours a day so it's a lot of time to be outside but it's also a hell of a lot of time to be on screens so yeah so there's an app where you can track how long you're spending outside etc etc we're on about 677 for the year so far don't know if we'll make the 1000 that's not really my goal my goal is to just make sure we get outside every single day and we just enjoy being outside particularly with things that are related to nature so doing a bit of gardening being in the forest we go to forest school etc so that's number one continue to get outside every day number two do one new thing each month to be more environmentally friendly this is kind of related to being outside because I think the more you're outside the more you realize how important the environment is and you learn to love it and want to care for it more and more so things I've done in recent months for example last month in August I just decided I just don't want to eat meat anymore so I basically become vegetarian and this month I have bought an electric car well I bought my electric car in March but I finally actually own it now I ordered it back in March it's taken six months to get here so yeah I've got a beautiful brand new electric car and I'm madly in love with it Again, I put some stuff on my social media about ideas for what I can do in October. It does not have to be as big as becoming vegetarian and buying an electric car. I feel like these are two quite major things I've done in the past two months. So yeah, it could be little things like, oh, I don't know, like using reusable wipes instead of using throwaway wipes or something like that. So it doesn't have to be huge. So yeah, any more ideas? I had loads of ideas from people. So I will let people know every month like what my new environmental thing is. And I think sharing stuff on social media makes you a bit more accountable as well. So but yeah, these are things that I'm not just going to do for one month. These are things that I want to implement in our lives that are going to continue. And just it's just a cumulative effect, basically, of doing more and more environmentally friendly things. OK, number three, Tuesday mornings are for me time and life admin. OK. So my son is now going to nursery three mornings a week. Monday mornings I need for work because I need to get myself set up for the week. I need to plan ahead what I'm teaching, what I'm doing, social media posts, podcasts, whatever I'm doing. Like I need the Monday mornings to do that. Tuesday mornings I've decided I'm going to be using for me time. And I've got so many things on my life admin list. If you don't know what I mean by life admin... Um, so things that are on my list are, for example, weeding, um, not, in, not even in my garden, <laughs> weeding around the outside of the fence, around the outside of our house, which I just never get around to doing it. Every time I look at it, I'm just like, oh, it's so disgusting. And I just need, I need to do it, but I, I need to like dedicate that time. <laughs> it's bonkers, isn't it? And then other things that I need to investigate, like, um, my son will be turning three next year, so I need to look at like free hours at nursery for like how you know how we can sort that out. Um, my cat is quite old, and I I'm so embarrassed to admit he's not insured. So on my list is working out cat insurance because 
yeah, probably going to need that at some point. I've got loads of like old nappy, well, cloth nappies, not like <laughs> used nappies, that's gross. Uh, cloth nappies and like baby clothes and things like that that I need to sell, but I just never have the time to do it. So that's what I mean by life admin. Like it's quite boring, but really important stuff. And I need to just carve out some time for me to do that. I'm also on Tuesday mornings, I'm going to be going swimming. I have reflexology. It's a time for me and yeah boring boring life stuff but really important and also I don't know about anyone else but I find my head feels better when I'm on top of certain life admin things as well that I don't have this constant nagging list in the back of my head don't know don't know how other people feel about that and the fourth one is work related because I really want to do more CPD this year so um running more online CPD sessions collaborating with other people on CPD sessions and again I've already talked about this on my social media but if anybody wants to work with me on CPD sessions I would absolutely love to do that I just think there are so many amazing people out there doing such incredible stuff in the world of MFL and I would really really love to work with you guys the first one I'm doing this year is just me on my own. I'm doing my lesson planning 101 again. The whole of season two was about lesson planning and it's a bit of a taster of what you can expect on the lesson planning 101 workshops. I'm actually running it over two separate weekends this time because I did it in one day last time and it was a lot. It was about five or six hours and it was a lot. So this time I'm actually splitting it over two Saturdays which is just the mornings and which will hopefully be easier for people and also gives you time to implement the things from the first session before you then start thinking about things in the second session. So the first session is on uh, how to start a lesson really well and introducing vocabulary and grammar and stuff like that. The second session, um, so that's on the 10th of September, the 24th of September, we're doing listening and reading as one session and then speaking and writing. So the active skills and the passive skills uh, uh, together and then how to end a lesson well. And that's on the 24th of November, so you, uh, September, sorry. So you can sign up for that on my website. Go to katelanguages.co.uk forward slash courses. And I've got my online language courses still up just about. They'll be going offline fairly soon because we're starting them on the 12th of September as well. See, it's just busy, busy. It's so exciting. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, and you can click on CPD courses and you can purchase it then. It's only 40 quid for two days of, of workshops. Things a bit of a bargain to be honest. Um, so yeah, there we go. And I'm really hoping to get into schools and work with people in their schools, either on lesson planning or designing a curriculum or anything else that people think I might be able to help them with. I'm really looking forward to actually working with people in person, face to face, finally, after two years of pandemic and restrictions and me having a small baby. So yeah, can't wait to do that. So there you go, they're my four resolutions. And as I said, I'd love to know what yours are as well. All right, now moving on to the questions that people sent me on social media. So I've picked my two favourites and I'm going to talk through those. Hopefully they will be useful to you. And again, I always love to hear people's ideas and opinions and input from these types of things as well. So the first question was, how much target language should you use in a lesson? Okay, so... To go right back to the beginning, target language is the foreign language that you are teaching. So if you are teaching French, target language is French. So how much French do you as the teacher need to be using in a lesson? And I'm really sorry to say that there is no right or wrong answer to this. 
So if you're hoping for a right or wrong answer, uh, there is none. I think it depends on so many different factors. First of all, the most important thing, I think it really depends on your children, on the young people sitting in front of you in the classroom. I know in probably the majority of schools I worked in, in terms of behaviour management, I just don't think that using a lot of target language would have been conducive to a calm, orderly classroom where the children are actually paying any attention and doing anything you ask them to do. Um, because I, I don't know, people might argue the opposite. They might argue that actually if you're using the target language, it forces them to pay attention and listen and things like that. I don't know. For me, it feels like things take a lot longer. But yeah, it's, I don't know. For me, setting up a task and explaining a task in English, it just gets their attention more, it's quicker, and it lets you control the situation more and allows for less disruption and fewer problems. That's my experience. And I'm thinking back to when I taught in London in schools where the behaviour, you know, it's really hard to keep on top of the behaviour. And if you're just like reeling off a load of stuff in French, they are not going to listen. It would just produce absolute carnage. So, yeah, it depends on your children. And again, and also I think it depends on the age of the children. I know for some people actually working with year sevens, it's easier to use more target language. And if you introduce it from the beginning, or if you have set phrases that you use for introducing tasks or for classroom routine. So it's not a bad thing for classroom routine. So, you know, come into the room, sit down, open your books. That's the kind of thing you could be doing in the target language. Doing the register if you have to do a register, things like that. Like, there are easy things that you can be doing in the target language. But as I say, for me personally, in my experience, setting up tasks, unless they are super, super easy, is just something that I just feel like is a lot easier to do in English. Another thing that I have never done and would never do, and even in A-level, is teaching grammar in the target language. I mean, to be honest, I don't even know if I could explain, like, especially A-level, I don't even know if I could explain it myself in the target language, let alone get it across to them in a way that they really understand. And fascinatingly, over the summer, I was teaching teachers, as I do, that's what I do now, uh, teaching my online intensive courses. And the French Improvers is the one I was doing. And one of the people on the course had done some kind of SKE last summer, which had all been taught in French. And she'd understood quite a lot and she got a few, you know, she, her French was good and she'd learned quite a lot of French that way. But when I started describing grammar points and explaining grammar points and going through it and practicing it in English, because that's the way I do it, she did say, oh, okay, yeah, either she'd slightly misunderstood or it just finally clicked. And I just thought, if you're thinking about doing this with children, how much time are you wasting but also how much room is there for them to not understand what you're saying 
and to therefore not actually understand the language if you're doing it all in the target language and they're just really confused and finding it really difficult. So personally, I would say I do not teach grammar in the target language ever. So a few easy things to do in the target language. As I said, classroom routines, going through answers. When the answers, when the questions and answers are in the target language, I mean, you could do like, if you've got true false statements in the target language. So this is a thing as well, like if you're doing a reading or listening and the question's in English, you need to go through the answers in English. You can't switch around with the target language in English. It's too confusing. So you have to look at what language the questions are in. But if you've got questions in the target language, so say you've got five statements and you're going through which ones are true and which ones are false, that's a great thing to do in the target language because you can say, okay, number one, I don't know, Bob loves cats. Is that true or false? Obviously, this is all in the target language. So, numéro un, Bob adore les chiens ou les chats. I just said cats and I les chats. Uh, c'est vrai ou faux? And then the kids have to say vrai ou faux. And then if it's faux, ah, c'est faux. Alors, il n'aime pas les chats. Il adore les... And then there might be something in the text that says he loves dogs or something. So then they can come up with the answer in the target language as well. So, il adore les chiens. So, yeah, that kind of thing. So that's the kind of thing I do a lot in the target language. And setting up, you know, a speaking kind of thing, explaining what they need to do. I would, again, explain exactly what they need to do in English, but then giving examples and going through that in the target language as well. But at the end of the day, I think, as I said before, a lot of it depends on your children, the class sitting in front of you, and your own preference. If you love doing stuff in the target language, that's absolutely fine. Another thing, actually, I wanted to add on to this is I know, because this is what I do, for quite a lot of teachers who are teaching a language that they don't actually really speak very well, the thought of having to do loads and loads of stuff in the target language is so stressful and so difficult and just more of a chance for them to feel like, you know, they don't know what they're doing, they don't know what they're saying, and it would just add to the stress so much that I think take that expectation away from yourself and just do whatever you can with the language knowledge that you have. Because if your language knowledge isn't very high, if your level of the language isn't particularly high, and you're thinking, oh my God, I need to be doing all these, you know, questions and explaining things and everything in the target language, you are going to give yourself an added level of stress and worry that just doesn't need to be there. Now, I'm sure there are loads of academic studies that show like the advantages and disadvantages of using target language in the classroom. But as I've said, at the end of the day, I think it needs to be your own gut instinct about your children, about your preferences. Try to just be consistent. I think that's one of the things that is important. So if you decide you're not gonna, so I, like I've said, I don't explain grammar in the target language ever. I'm consistent on that. I just don't see the point of doing it personally. I don't know if I could, so I'm not even going to try. Whereas going through answers, I will almost exclusively do in the target language if it lends itself to it. And again, a lot of this is 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 working, getting experience, trial and error and things like that. I would love to hear people's opinions on this though, because I think it's something that divides people quite a lot. I also think if you are a trainee or an ECT or just being observed by anybody who isn't a language specialist, you 
might have had the feedback of, oh, you should be using more target language in the classroom. I genuinely think this is something that people observe language lessons, they don't know anything about languages teaching, and they're like, hmm, they don't seem to be speaking French very much. Maybe I'll just put that as a comment for something that they can improve on. And I, yeah, I, to be honest, I would think you're doing really well. If that's the one thing they pick up on, and it's something that you have decided yourself whether you are or are not going to do it, and they haven't got anything else to comment or criticise you on, then I think you're doing pretty well. <laughs> so yeah, but as I say, I'd love to hear people's opinions on this. I think it's uh, it is a really interesting topic and probably could, you know, there probably have been many uh, PhD dissertation or master's dissertation written on, on this to exact topic. Um, okay, the second question that somebody asked me was about the private sector, as in like private schools, um, not private industry, but the, yeah, so whether I have any experience in the private sector, as in in private schools or not, and the answer is quite simply no, but I will talk about what I know about private schools um, a little bit. I'm not just going to go, no, okay, bye, that's the end. I, so I have never worked in a private school and I didn't go to private school myself. My mum, however, was also a languages teacher and she went to a private school as a pupil, but no offence mum, but like a really long time ago, uh, <laughs> a million years ago, and then ended up teaching in the same school that she went to as a pupil at the end of her career before she retired. And she had worked in state schools up until that point and then moved over to the to the private school for a few years before she retired and she said there there are so many differences and there are a lot of positives but that people should never think it's the easy option and I think quite a lot of people think oh private schools are so easy and you can just you know just go and work in one and life will be a lot easier and all rainbows and sunshine and unicorns but there, there are a lot of challenges in a private school. So I'm going to talk about what my mum's told me about the differences between state schools and private schools and the positives and negatives of both. So obviously one of the positives of a private school and the main reason why people pay for their children to go to school is class size. Class sizes are smaller in private schools. Um, and that, in my mind, is a positive. However, for some people it is a negative more in terms of children and kind of like a smaller pool of people for them to be friends with but for some people they enjoy having a bigger class you can I don't know play more games and you can do more and, and the atmosphere is a bit more lively and a bit more fun for me I think smaller class sizes is a positive like 100% because your marking is less when you've got smaller class sizes. It is easier to, um, you know, to manage the behaviour, to manage the classroom. It's easier to give them all attention. And especially in languages, it means that they have a chance to talk a lot more. If you've got 15 kids in a class instead of 30, that's twice as much attention and twice as much time each kid can have. So that is an obvious one that is a difference and a big positive. Secondly, behaviour does tend to be a lot easier to manage in private schools. The kids are fully aware that their parents are paying for the school and therefore it is easier to, you know, they, they just have to behave themselves a lot better. That's not to say that all children in private schools are really, really well behaved. 
I mean, we won't we won't talk about our outgoing prime minister who went to a very well known private school. And I can't imagine he is very well known at school at all. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are some very very naughty children at, at private schools. But as a rule, the behaviour is a lot easier to manage and a lot better. Again, if people work in private schools and would like to dispute this, please do let me know. Do you know, I was just thinking, I have worked in a private school. <laughs> I did. God. Oh my God, I'm getting so old. I did. I did my first placement in a private school. And I was just thinking like, oh my, yeah, it was such, such a shock to go for it. It was a beautiful boys' school in Guildford in Surrey. Oh, it was such a lovely school. And then I went to a comprehensive school in Croydon for my second placement. And I have to say the difference between the two was enormous. And yeah, the behaviour was just so much better in the private school. It really, really was a lot, a lot easier to deal with. So smaller class sizes, behaviour is easier to manage. I think the attitude, because again, they know that their parents are paying for it, maybe they tend to be a little bit more engaged. In terms of languages, I don't know whether this is a bit of a stereotype, but maybe they might be more engaged with languages in a private school, because if you've got the money to go to a private school, you can probably afford to go on holiday to France and Spain and things like that. I don't know. To be fair, I think attitude towards languages, I don't know. I just think it's generally quite negative in the UK, so... I'm just thinking if if some if if this question was asked to me from somebody who's like thinking of moving to a private school, hoping that they will all love languages, I wouldn't I wouldn't assume that they are keener. And actually, somebody who I've worked with who taught on my French courses last year has been working in a private school locally, and she I think she was saying that actually the numbers are really decreased. Languages tend to be compulsory for GCSE, but when you're looking at A-level or when you're looking at take-up of a second language, so quite often in a private school, they have to do, for example, French for GCSE, plus they have the opportunity to do more, you know, a second or even, I don't know, third language maybe, if they're really lucky. And also, actually, just thinking about it, the variety of languages on offer in private schools, that I'm the ones I'm thinking of, Will, there'll often be the opportunity to do some, maybe some Italian, maybe some Russian, Chinese, things like that. So there's a bigger variety. And if you, as a languages teacher, are not just a French, German or Spanish specialist and actually want to teach Italian, that might be a place for you to do it where you wouldn't find a place for yourself in the state sector. In terms of money, resources, things like that, obviously private schools have a hell of a lot more money than state schools. And I think that gap is just getting wider and wider these days. So in terms of resources, actually being able to have a textbook for every child, things like that, then yeah, you are going to have that in private schools. However, there are negatives. And this is one of the things that I remember my mum talking about. And I thought, yeah, this is, this is a really interesting one. Because they're paying for it, the parents can be a lot more demanding. And I mean can as in they might be, not as in they're allowed to be, if that makes sense. So you will find that the parents' demands on the teachers can sometimes be pretty, pretty high in terms of what they expect from you and in terms of almost treating you like... I was going to say like staff, um, you know, like 
don't know, like they're employees or something. But there, there can be that kind of attitude amongst people who send their kids to private schools of like, I'm paying for this, I expect X, Y, Z. And that does roll over a bit into the expectations on you as a teacher. I had an interview at private school many years ago. And one of the questions they asked me was which sports team I'd be able to coach. And I was like, um, well, none. I don't know. I mean, I quite like running. I could do some, like, athletics. I don't know. But, yeah, the expectations of teachers to be able to coach sports teams, I was a little bit thrown by that one, I must admit. So, yeah, I think even though, as I've said, behaviour management is easier, you have more money, more resources, smaller class sizes... The demands on the teachers are not less than those in the state sector. They're just very different. And maybe they come from the parents as well as, or instead of, I don't know, the senior leadership and management and governors and head and Ofsted and whatever. So, yeah, that's my knowledge and understanding and experience of the differences between private schools and state schools. I'd be really interested to hear from people who've worked in both and what they find the differences are between the two, whether I'm, I've completely missed the mark here or whether I'm right about a lot of these things. And, I mean, my mum did retire quite a long time ago, so things have possibly changed since then. Who knows? Um, so, yeah, do get in touch, as I said, about any things I've talked about. So if you've got any September resolutions that you want to share your thoughts about using target language in a lesson and also the differences between the independent school sector and the and state schools. I'd be really interested to hear people's experiences of those. So I've been rabbiting on for over half an hour and I'm losing my voice so I am going to go and as I say I hope you are having or have had a really great start to the term and good luck for the rest of the academic year and I will see you next week I've got a great interview with the wonderful Julie who is at Teaching Planning Languages and that's going to be my episode next week and I can't wait to share it with you so until then au revoir, happy design, adios, bye